Good morning. My name is Dave Shockey. I am one of the pastors here at Campus House, and it is my sincere pleasure to get to speak with you all this morning. Um, we are in a series, if you weren't here last week because of spring break, we kicked off our new series, which is on the Emmaus Road, which is a post-Easter story that is going to lead us to Easter. And so it's a story of a couple of Jesus' disciples who witnessed his death and, re- and heard about his resurrection but didn't really even believe what they heard about his resurrection and decided to take off. And they were trying to make sense of what happened. And so I love this story, the walk to Emmaus. I love it. It is instructive. It shows us so much about people and God. And we're going to be spending the next few weeks in it, kind of walking on this same road. We're going to take four or five different takes at different sections and kind of dive deep into it. So we're going to walk over this and look at it over the next few weeks. But today, we're going to look at the first part of it. And so we're going to read the text each week, the whole text each week, which is in Luke 24, starting in verse 13 to 35. And... um, We're reading it out of the NIV, so you can follow along there if you'd like. You also can close your eyes and listen. Imagine yourself in the story and just kind of let the story go over you. I'll recap it at the end, but uh, mercifully, because I'm going to be speaking for the next half hour, I asked Megan to come up and read it for you so you can hear someone else's voice. This is Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Now that same day, two of them were walking to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. 
But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them, assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Thanks, Megan. So today we're going to be looking kind of at the whole story, but specifically at verses 13 to 16. But just to recap it, it's a story where you had a couple of disciples who witnessed a lot of things, heard from the women that Jesus was risen from the dead, uh, didn't really believe them, left, went into uh, another city. Jesus encounters them on the road, masks his identity so they don't recognize him, asks questions, processes with it, reveals himself through all of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, shows them why they should believe in him, then sits down, has dinner with them, breaks bread, and all of a sudden their eyes are opened and they realize it's Jesus, and then he disappears. And then they stand up and say, oh my goodness, he is risen. Run back to the other disciples to share the good news. So we're going to jump in and look at this text today. Starting in verse 13, it says, Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, which begs the question, what day? And so the day that they are taking this walk is actually Easter afternoon. And so I'm going to just give the backdrop real quick so you can understand what day they decided to take off and leave from Jerusalem. Uh, Luke 24 verse 1 says, But on the first day of the week at the early dawn, they, which is some of the women who had come with Jesus, they came to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but they went in. They did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood before them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again? Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all of this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna the mother of James, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them to be an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stopping and looked in, and he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home and was amazed by what had happened. And so on what day, now the same day the two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, the day was Easter. 
And that morning, they had just heard these women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Joanna, and some other ladies, recount the fact that they had an angelic visitation, uh, the tomb was empty, and that Christ was risen. But because of the day, uh, they did not believe women, which was a problem. Uh, And so none of them bought it. They thought the women were telling an idle tale. This tells us something about the culture in which this was written, in which this happened, is that women did not have an honored place in society. They weren't allowed to be witnesses in a court of law. And it is awesome and amazing that Jesus bestows the dignity of the first people to learn about the resurrection to women, which is awesome. They're the first ones that are sent to go and tell the other apostles and disciples that Jesus was risen from the dead. Jesus put a huge countercultural honor on these women, and that is great. But in this story, our main characters uh, didn't believe the women. They thought it was an idle tale and decided to leave in their confusion. So uh, they were walking away, confused, and they were talking it out together. It said, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened while they were talking and discussing. So it says talking and discussing, but if you look at the Greek words and you look at other translations, it comes through. They weren't just having like a, a, a gentle recounting of what happened and like, oh, well, you know, this happened and this happened. It says as they were arguing and discussing, as they were really like conversing, working over, kind of arguing about the details and implications of everything that happened, that, uh, that they were having this kind of heated talk. I think there's something really cool about this is that they were walking together and they were disagreeing with one another. And I think for our cultural moment in this day and age and in the massive division that we have in our country and culture, I think there's a really cool thing that we can draw from this is just that they were walking together and disagreeing with one another. That I think that there can be a tendency in our culture today, as soon as someone disagrees with you or you disagree with them, to stop walking together and to move in opposite directions. Because somehow, like, friendship has been equated with agreement. And I think it's cool that here you've got people together but differing. And that we can still love and honor and respect and be in community with people that we do not agree with. And I think that that is something beautiful that we can pull from this text. And in fact, I think it's something that's necessary in order for us to ultimately get to the place of truth, that we don't have the full picture. None of us have the total picture and the complete uh, revelation that as we walk together in community, even in disagreements, that as we disagree and bump into one another, our iron sharpens iron, right? Our disagreement with one another, that we can actually probably bump and get together into a closer place of truth. Not that truth is relative or unable to be grasped, but it's easier to find it as we walk together. In disagreement. I don't think the goal of Christianity is getting people to conform to a specific theological position. And the goal of life with other people is not to conform everyone to the same opinion. But the goal of the Christian life is to have 
to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, transformation, not confirmation, and to be transformed into the life of Christ by meeting and interacting with the person of Jesus. So, Easter morning or afternoon, they were walking because they didn't believe the women. They were walking away, discussing, arguing with one another about what happened. And then it says, Jesus himself came near and went with them which is just a profound statement that Jesus came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I love it that Jesus came near and went with them, that he entered into both their disbelief and their disagreement, that they were disbelieving what the women said, disbelieving in the resurrection, thinking it's an idle tale, and walking away from Jerusalem. And they were disagreeing with one another about what happened. And Jesus walked in, kept them from recognizing him, and went with him. And so I want to draw out three patterns that are here that have big implications for us. We're going to see that God regularly draws near and goes with people. Throughout Scripture, it's a part of his character. We're going to see that he also conceals things in order to accomplish his purposes. And we're going to see how he does that and why he's doing that in this text. And then we're going to see that Jesus is always the one who acts first. So pattern number one is God draws near and walks with us. So even in the midst of mess... Or before Mass, God is a God who draws near and desires to be near his people and to go with them. That in the garden, before the fall, God drew near and walked with Adam in the cool of the day. And they talked together. He drew near and was with him. After the fall... God drew near and said, Adam, where are you? Adam and Eve, where are you? Because they were hiding from God. And he drew near, sacrificed some animals, dealt with the consequences of the fall with them. Israel, when they were liberated from slavery in Egypt, God drew near and his presence went with them out from Egypt and through the desert into the promised land. In the temple, God's presence drew near and was with his people. Through the voice of the prophets, God's presence was near and went with them. Jesus was incarnate, that Mary was pregnant with Jesus. God himself drew near, came into the world, and went with us. And now he has died, and in his resurrection, what is he doing? But he again is drawing near and being with us. It's this cool pattern that kind of goes throughout all of the Bible that God draws near and goes with his people. It's, it's beautiful. And that Jesus entered into the process and went with them so that he could unpack the whole of scriptures and reveal himself. It's wild. So I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to go back. Well, I'm going to go to the second pattern that we're uncovering, and that's that Jesus sometimes conceals things in order to accomplish his purposes. 
And so he hid himself from his disciples, right? And that's kind of weird because they're in the midst of a discussion. They're in the midst of trying to figure out what's going on. And like Jesus could just roll up and be like, ta-da, it's Jesus. Like problem solved, discussion over, like I'm here. But for some reason, he decides not just to show up and say, look, it's me. But he decides to walk along with them concealed and kind of work out this process with them, which I think is really cool. Uh, and this isn't a new thing. He has concealed himself at other times for other reasons. In Luke 8.45, uh, he, uh, he's, he's walking through this region, and there's a man who is possessed with a whole bunch of demons and is just like wild and cutting himself and living in a graveyard and has superhuman strength. And he casts the demons out of this man and puts it onto this giant herd of pigs. The pigs run over and uh, crash into the water, and this crowd comes out so angry. And the reason that they're angry is not because Jesus liberated this man who was uh, oppressed by demons, but that there was an, an economic implication for the liberation from oppression for this man. And they could not stand the loss of money for the sake of liberation. And so they got angry. And what Jesus did was he didn't confront the crowds and say, oh, you're all wrong or cast them into the sea too. He concealed himself and walked through the crowd and disappeared so that he could accomplish his purpose of continuing to preach about the kingdom of God, going to the cross, dying, and being resurrected. He also does this in Luke 9.45. He tells that, uh, his disciples that he must be um, turned over to sinners and uh, crucified and died and rise on the third day. But the meaning of that and even the memory of that was concealed from his disciples, that they didn't catch it. Like he, he, throughout the Gospels, he's revealing himself and the disciples aren't necessarily catching it or understanding it. But what's, what's cool is that it allowed him to carry out the rest of his purposes. And then that was even like stuck there and entrusted so that these angels here in 24.1 can be like, hey, do you remember that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners, be crucified and on the third day, rise again? And then at that moment, they remember and they're like, oh, that's what it meant. So like God spoke his word to them and then even the impact and meaning of it was revealed later. And I think a lot of times, I know I have this almost all the time when I'm reading the Bible, even a story I've read many times before, like I can read it afresh and the Spirit can like, oh, I've read this a thousand times and I had no idea that that's what it meant. And so like meanings can be concealed until the right time to accomplish God's purpose. And so I think he's doing that here in the text because he enters in, he hides himself enters into their process, into their disagreement, into their discussion, and then starts asking questions and then starts revealing how the Word of God, the Old Testament, the prophets, how that was revealing that the Messiah should have been crucified and die and rise again. So he reveals all that. He enters into the process, enters into the discussion and reveals what the word says to them in the moment. And then in the place of intimacy, when they invite Jesus into their house, they sit down, he breaks bread. And at that moment, as he breaks the bread, their eyes are open. They're like, oh my goodness, it's Jesus. 
They say, weren't our hearts burning within us when he was talking? That was Jesus the whole time. And it made sense. And it changed the trajectory of their lives. And of their day, they walked another seven miles back. What I think is cool is that he hid himself to enter into their process rather than overriding the process. He didn't say your questions don't matter. He didn't say that um, you don't need to, 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 he didn't say just believe, look, here I am. But he went in and he revealed how their questions mattered and how scripture revealed the truth about who he was. And I see this happening, not just with scripture, and not just with doubt, like what these guys were suffering with, that they doubted the testimony of these women who had seen. That it's cool, Jesus isn't afraid of the process of doubt. He'll enter in and help answer questions. But he also does this with pain and other difficulties in our lives. That he can, he has all the power. He can just show up and say, ta-da, and sometimes he does, and he washes away the pain. But more often what I see is that the Lord enters into our questions, he enters into our doubts, and he enters into our pain, and he begins to work it out step by step as we walk with him. And so he worked out their doubts and disagreements step by step as they walked down this path. Hey, look at what this says. 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 And then, boom, revealed it. Because God loves our minds, and he loves our intellect. And he doesn't ask us just to hang up our, the brain that he gave us in order to engage with him. He doesn't say suspend your mind so that you just, you know, okay, here's church and here's everything else. Like we hang our brains at the door and then we come in and we worship God and we leave and then we say, okay, back to reality. No, no, he enters into our reality and makes sense of it step by step over the long haul. He also enters into our pain and heals it. I said this morning that my sister is in the process of recovering from 15 years of alcoholism. So she's been sober and she's doing well for like a month, but it's been really hard. And like God has shown up in her process, but he's not just like snapping his fingers and making everything magically go away and be okay. He's walking her through this long process. And I think in some capacity, really honoring the last 15 years of pain by making the process of healing complete and long. That he's entering in and he's uncovering the implications, uncovering why she went down this road, the pain that led her down this road, the ways that, that she's been harmed, the ways that her alcoholism has harmed other people and harmed herself, and is working through the process to heal and to restore and to make new each one of those. And sure, he can like snap his fingers and could make it all go away, but I think that he actually equips us in the process of healing us to be able to be conduits of God's healing to other people. Second Corinthians says, the God of all comfort comforts us in every affliction. And I think it's interesting. It doesn't say that he just comforts us generally. It says in every affliction, he comforts us in every affliction. So he comforts us individually in each affliction that we have, in each wound that we have. In each question and doubt and difficulty, he can enter into those specifically. It says he comforts us in every affliction so that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction with the same comfort that we are receiving from God. 
And so that he can pour his self, himself and his healing and his wisdom and his revelation into the areas that are deficits and pain and wound and questions in our lives with the purpose of equipping us to be able to extend his comfort to others as well. And so Jesus hid himself in order to honor their process and enter their process and walk with them through their process. He didn't just override it. But in the process, these guys were actually equipped that when, when they realized it was Jesus, they ran back down the same road to tell the disciples, oh my goodness, we met Jesus. And it wasn't just a random thing. And it wasn't a random thing with the ladies either. It was, it, it was like, hey, look, here's what Jesus said that I'm going to suffer, die, and rise again, what the ladies had. And then also, hey, look, the Old Testament, the prophets, the law, Moses, they all point to the fact that Jesus had to die and rise again. They were equipped with that knowledge from God, had experienced the reality of him, and then could go back and share that with other people. So God takes the time to walk out our process of healing and our process of like coming to know him and grappling with the transcendent things of the universe. He takes time and enters that process with us and even can conceal himself sometimes in order to honor that process and walk through it with us. And the third pattern. So God draws near and walks with us. Sometimes he conceals himself for a purpose or conceals things and information for a purpose. And the third one is that Jesus acts first. First John 4.19 says, uh, we love for he has first loved us. And then I want to read part of Romans 5 here. But I think that's brilliant. We love because he first loved us. That Jesus was the primary actor in this. Romans 5, 8 through 10 says, But God proves his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. So while we were enemies opposed to God, Christ died for us. While we were apart from him, Christ died. While we didn't love him, he loved us. While we were incapable of love, he brought love in And so Jesus acts first. And through his love, his primary acting love, he actually gives us the ability to love and follow him. So he honors the process and he acts first. He draws near, he enters the pain. But like, what's amazing is that his acting first in this, these guys were actively walking away from the whole situation. They were walking away from everything that they knew. They were walking away from Jerusalem. They were walking away from the other disciples, and they were disillusioned. And even in their walking away, Christ acted first, and he drew near to them. 
They weren't drawing near to Jesus. They weren't waiting with Jesus. They were walking away, and he acted first. And so I think that this gives a great deal of hope. There's two things here that give a great deal of hope. One is if you're walking away disillusioned, hurt, or doubting, that Jesus cares about the process, and he acts first to follow us. Even if we don't see him in the moment, he is acting. And so if you're walking away, I want to give you... uh, Three quick things, that we entertain strangers that join the process, that the Lord might bring people or ideas along to interact with that might be helpful, even if the voices are dissonant from what you're hearing or what you're thinking, but to, to, to entertain a multiplicity of voices, to not shut down the process, but to continue in the process and wrestling with those things that you're doubting or struggling with. Invite people into the process with you. And note the burning heart moments when things seem unusual, when you feel weight on something that's being said. Take note of the burning heart moments because God is at work. And Christians, friends who are not doubting or not walking away, I want to encourage you guys to be open to entering your friend's process, especially if they don't agree with you. To not just shut down and drop real quick, well, Jesus died for you and forgave your sins, and if you don't believe that, I'm going to walk away. But to enter into their process, enter into the real questions, enter into the wrestling and the pain and the doubt and the hurt and the waiting, to enter in in a meaningful way and walk with people where they are, not to shut down their voices, but to be willing to be a conduit of God's wisdom into where they're at, not trying to bring them to where you're at, but entering where they are because God is incarnational and he enters into the place where we are. Okay, bonus, bonus thought, and then I'm going to wrap it up. The bonus thought is this, that I love our God because the first two people he chooses to be like spokespeople for his resurrection the first two groups of people that he entrusts with the revelation of his resurrection are women whose testimonies don't hold weight in court, that weren't actually listened to in that culture and time, that were, whose testimonies were actually disregarded, and they thought, oh, it's just women telling an idle tale. He entrusted the first one to the women, and the second one, the second people that he entrusted the good news of his resurrection were some dudes that were walking away. Like it's not, the kingdom of God is not about how well we do. It is about how good our God is. That he entrusts his revelation to those who are screwing up and walking away or trusting the revelation to those who are weak and unhonored in that society that he brings dignity to women and those who do not hold dignity in that culture of that day, and he brings it to people who are weak and walking away and upset and disillusioned. He really does choose the weak things to shame the wise. He really does bring his kingdom in quiet and unexpected ways. Mary wasn't rich. Jesus didn't show up the first time like in a cloud of fire with lightning and I am God, but he showed up as a little baby and he went and suffered and died so that we could be connected to him. He's so gentle. He is so countercultural. He is so good. 
And when we interact with and encounter this God, when we meet this real Jesus, it results in a change. So for these disciples, for for Mary and the other women, the Marys, they resulted in a change. They went mourning with spices and they left with crazy excitement. Oh my goodness, he is alive. I've got to tell someone. These guys left with disillusionment and doubt and unbelief and they walked down a road in unbelief, disbelief. They met the real living Jesus and they turned around on the road and went in a different direction. This story of these guys, it is a story of repentance, which literally means turning around. It is a picture of people who were walking one way, encountered Jesus, and turned around and started walking in a different way. Repentance isn't just saying, I'm sorry for my sins. That's not the essence of repentance. It usually includes saying, I'm sorry for my sins, but it's not just saying, I'm sorry and walking on or paying some sort of penance and continuing in your way. Repentance is turning around and walking in a new direction. And whenever we encounter the living God, it results in some sort of repentance, some kind of turning around. Even if we're walking with him, when we get a new degree of the revelation of the power and goodness and person of Jesus himself, it results in life change. We turn in a new direction because he is amazing and he is beyond what we can imagine. And so this quote was hitting me. It's from C.S. Lewis. And it says, it's always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. An impersonal God, that's well and good. A distant, angry God sitting on a throne somewhere. A subjective God of beauty and truth and goodness inside of our heads, that's better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power that we can trap and use for our purposes, that's best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching us at infinite speed. That is quite another matter. There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back, supposing we actually found him. We never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing he has found us. That the reality of pressing in to God, it's not a subtle exercise in religion. It's not a matter of entertaining thoughts that don't actually engage our hearts or our lives. It's not a matter of just walking through some religious duty. It is a matter of pursuing a person. That God is not just some distant deity that can't possibly be known. He's not just the expression of life or beauty or the universe. He's not just some power that we can use for our own purposes. He is a real person, a living person. Yes, he is preeminent in the universe, reigning creator God of everything, but he can be known. He is the God who reveals himself and walks with us. So you might say, okay, Dave, I've never seen the living God. Jesus has never showed up in the midst of my conversation, tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, what's up? It's JC. Because, and God actually, he actually addresses this before his crucifixion in John 16. He's talking about how he's going to die and, uh, and, and leave them. And in John 16, four, he says this, 
he said, but I've said these things to you so that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you about them. I didn't say these things about my crucifixion to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asked me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you. Sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I ascend and go away to the Father. For if I do not go away, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he'll prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because they do not believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will see me no longer, about judgment because the ruler of this world has been condemned. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into the tr- all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you all the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus still shows up and enters into our process. A hundred percent. He is at work in the lives of believers, teaching us, instructing us, leading and guiding us by his Holy Spirit. God has promised it. Jesus promised it. It's been prophesied back in the day. Joel 2, 28 says, Then afterward, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And he says, even on male and female slaves, it doesn't matter your gender or your standing or your position in society. In those days, I will pour out my spirit on everyone. And so the Holy Spirit also isn't some impersonal power that does things that we don't understand. He's a person. He's a person with us. And as we encounter him, he'll change everything. As we encounter Jesus through his word and through his spirit, he will lead us, he will heal our process, he will guide us in new directions. But every time we encounter him, it requires repentance and a turning around.